presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is Dr. Michael Benson, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, practicing obstetrician, gynecologist, and author. A patient requesting early prescription refills, reporting lost medication, and other deviations to a dosing regimen is certainly worth noting. With ADD and ADHD medications for our child patients, these irregularities may be warning signs of a larger problem. Joining me today is Dr. Jennifer Christner, Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Communicable Diseases and Director of Pediatric Medical Student Education at the University of Michigan. Dr. Christner, welcome to ReachMD. Hi, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in stimulant use and misuse among children? I practice adolescent medicine, and actually one of my areas of expertise is school problems. And so as a result of that, I see a lot of patients starting at around the age of 10 or so that have ADHD and school-related issues. And so one of the things that I've certainly been getting a lot of questions about lately is the potential for misuse and abuse of these drugs. So what are the statistics for pharmaceutical stimulant abuse? Sure. So there was actually a fantastic systematic review by Wylands et al., and it really looked at these kind of misuse issues. And so what it found is that the past year prevalence of stimulant misuse really ranges from anywhere between 5 to about 9% in grade school and high school kids. And then there's even a broader range in college ages where some studies find as little as 5%, where some find a range of up to 35% of misuse. For our audience who may be unclear on this, what's the denominator of that statistic? Is that 5 to 9% are misusing for those who are prescribed, or is that 5 to 9% of the entire population? That's a good question. So this is misuse in this case indicates use of a stimulant medication if you are not prescribed the drug. So we are actually not talking about kids who actually are on the medications and may be misusing those drugs. That's another topic as well. But In these studies, misuse was defined as you are not prescribed a stimulant medication, but you are misusing in some way. So up to 10% of the population is taking prescription stimulants that aren't prescribed. Correct. So what does the government want to do about that? That's a good question. I think there's a lot that's not known about this rather than too much that is known. Uh, You know, I haven't seen anything about government involvement there. When you look at the groups that misuse, it's actually very interesting because it kind of boils down, in my read, of two major groups. So you have one group that misuses, and when you look at surveys about why they're misusing, they're basically using to help them concentrate, to help them study, to help them pay attention. And so there's a lot of speculation and wondering, is it's misuse because they're not prescribed the drugs, but are they actually self-medicating because maybe they actually have ADHD and they're simply undiagnosed. And so while I would never say using a medication when it's not prescribed is appropriate, maybe they are in some way using the drug appropriately. So that's kind of interesting. And then you have the other segment that respond that is clearly using it inappropriately. So they're using it just for experimentation purposes, to get high, you know, non-kind of beneficial reasons. And how big are these groups? 
again, if you look at some of the studies that have been done, it splits up almost 50-50. So when you look at the kids who are misusing, in one study especially, the motivation to use for to concentrate or be more alert ranged from 40 to 60%. And then motivation to use just to get higher for experimentation was around 40%. So somewhat even as motivations to misuse. How do they get this data? They can hardly do cell phone interviews or whatever, right? Right. So in the systematic review that I was talking about that Wylands did, they identified 21 different studies that were pertinent. And of those, I believe it was 19 were survey-based studies. And I think one was a study where they did interview people personally. And one used a combination of a survey and then an in-person type of review. And total number of subjects for all these studies was somewhere between 11 and 12,000 young people. So the survey is actually given at the school or where's the survey given? Correct. There are a variety of different settings, but mostly it was given via the school. And then there's also a study funded by NIH that's called Monitoring the Future. And so this is a kind of an ongoing study about behaviors and things of American secondary school students and college students. And it was actually the 33rd year of this Monitoring the Future study was just recently. And so this also actually shows similar trends in stimulants, misuse, and abuse. And they monitor all drugs, not just stimulant drugs, but they ask survey questions about all drugs, and it's very similar. So, We talked about trends. What about trends over time? Yes. So that data actually is probably the best taken from this Monitoring the Future study. And what the Monitoring the Future study shows is that the stimulant misuse kind of reached a peak in the 90s, and then it has somewhat declined. And so it's declined for 8th graders, it's declined for 10th graders, and then it showed in the most recent version of the study that in 2002 is when there was a decline in 12th graders. Now, the one caveat about this study is that we don't really know why the use has declined. They only asked 12th graders questions on, you know, why are you using or not using a drug? And on 12th graders, it stated that because 12th graders saw a greater perceived risk to using these medications or just a general disapproval of that class of drugs. And that's literally kind of like how they asked the question. So we don't have a lot of information about why it's gone down, um, but that's probably the best source to look at that. So it does appear to be on the decline for at least high schoolers. We don't have it for sure, information about college students, however. If you have just tuned in, you are listening to a special segment on children's health on a clinician's roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and joining me today from the University of Michigan in the Department of Pediatrics and Communicable Diseases is Dr. Jennifer Christner. We are talking about stimulant drug overuse and misuse. Anybody know why the trends are decreasing? I don't think that we really do know why the trends are, are decreasing. It could be that they're turning to other drugs. If you look at the study and it says ecstasy is actually increasing in abuse, um, so I'm not sure if it's just, you know, they're turning to other drugs. Maybe there has been some education in the schools as ADHD is becoming so much more common. I know just locally, I don't know about nationally, but locally a lot of our schools will have programs for the kids on what ADHD is and what stimulants are. And so that's pure speculation on my part that perhaps are just getting a little bit more educated about this. I don't think we actually have any hardcore data that tells us that information right now. Where do these youngsters get the stimulants since their prescription? How in the world can 10% of the population be 
abusing prescription drugs if they're not prescribed them. Yeah, there is a little bit of literature on this, but again, probably not enough. And it's actually one of the areas that is cited as we need to do some more investigation. And so for grade school and high schoolers, clearly shows that if there is a student in their classroom who's using those medications that are appropriately prescribed, that it's going to be higher that those stimulant prescriptions will get to other kids. And so how they're doing it is they are asking them to give them or sell them or or trade their medications. And these are studies that are called diversion studies. And uh, one of them shows that about 16% of kids who are either in grade school or high school who are appropriately being prescribed ADHD medications had been asked by a peer to either give them their meds, sell them their meds, trade meds, you know, something like that. And in college, that number goes up to about 23%, so almost a quarter of college-aged kids who are, again, being appropriately prescribed the medication have been approached to give their drug or sell their drug to somebody else. I think the thing that might puzzle some of our listeners is the fact that these prescription medicines for the people who actually are prescribed them have very specific and discernible effects, both to the person and to those around the person, the teachers, the family members. So a diversion of drug would seem likely to cause adverse changes in behavior or even grades that others would notice. So it's hard for me to reconcile some of this information. Right. I think that with grade school or high school kids, that would be much more apparent. With grade school kids, even more so. With high school kids, I have to say from the kids I see, you know, many of them, you'll have seven different teachers during the course of a day. Again, I kind of see two groups, some that are very stable. They've been on these meds forever. They're very stable. And then others who there's a whole host of issues going on with them besides the ADHD. And so having a few bad days or a bad month might not actually strike a teacher as being completely unusual. I do think that there's probably not enough awareness out there right now that one of the things they could think about is that not just are you not taking your meds, but have you sold your meds or have you been coerced to, you know, give your meds away or something like that. That conversation probably definitely does not happen enough, but especially for the high schoolers and certainly for the college, there might not be someone who really notices that. How can pediatricians and family practitioners be suspicious? What behavior should they look for in their patients taking prescribed medication? Sure. I think one thing that you had already touched on was in almost all practices, there's a very regular way by which we account for when we give these scheduled drugs. So we log when we give the refills. You know, there's some sort of standardized format in almost all practices. So obviously, if you have a kid who you know, oh, I lost my prescription or I, you know, I ran out of it early or something. You know, we all make mistakes. That can happen once, maybe twice, maybe. But again, if that would be repeated behavior, that obviously you need to talk to that family. Something is going on that's not quite right. So that's one that's a really obvious thing. Otherwise, I think in younger kids, what we've already touched on, certainly if school performance is declining, we need to ask, are you taking your medications every day? And if not, why not? And really probe and ask these questions. And I would say that we even need to start before we see a problem by actually actively talking to our kids who are prescribed these drugs and say, hey, you know what? I know that kids are going to ask you for these medications. What should you do? You know, hey, mom, let's let's role play with Johnny. And what's going to happen when, you know, somebody asks you for one of these medications? What should you do? Who do you tell when that happens? So that's probably even more important is the preventative aspect and starting the conversation about it. On the other side, what about looking for signs of misuse in those who aren't prescribed? So that's going to be a lot more tricky. 
so first of all, for the subgroup of kids who is taking the medication, maybe because they're kind of self-medicating themselves, there might not be anything apparent or scarily enough, maybe there's actually good side effects from them actually misusing this medication. But then if we're looking at the kids who are misusing completely inappropriately to get high or just for experimentation with drugs, short term, you know, it produces a high that's kind of, you know, euphoria, it's excitement. You can have a kind of increased alertness. But then eventually, I think, again, looking at physical signs, these kids usually will have a decrease in appetite. They may have weight loss. They may have hypertension. They may have tachycardia. So probably doing a good look at just vital signs, weight loss, hypertension, heart rates, it would be a good thing to do. And most of us who take care of college-age kids are usually adept at looking at weight because there's such an instance of eating disorders and other things that if we saw that, would probably start a conversation about what's going on. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Jennifer Christner, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Communicable Diseases at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS 1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS-1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape a routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a, a trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but are detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily want to take a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing, and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample. We determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-Igeronidase. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com.